episode 65. Mr. Link Dees walked Helen home the short way by the Yules. On his way back, Mr. Link stopped at the crazy gate. Yule, he called. I say, Yule. The windows, normally packed with children, were empty. I know every last one of you's in there laying on the floor. Now hear me, Bob Ewell. If I hear one more peep out of my girl Helen about not being able to walk this road, I'll have you in jail before sundown. Mr. Link spat in the dust and walked home. Helen went to work the next morning and used the public road. Nobody chunked at her. But when she was a few yards beyond the Yule house, she looked around and saw Mr. Yule walking behind her. She turned and walked on, and Mr. Yule kept the same distance behind her until she reached Mr. Linkney's house. All the way to the house, Helen said, she heard a soft voice behind her crooning foul words. Thoroughly frightened, she telephoned Mr. Link at his store, which was not too far from his house. As Mr. Link came out of his store, he saw Mr. Yule leaning on the fence. Mr. Yule said, Don't you look at me, Link Dees, like I was dirt. I ain't jumped your... First thing you can do, Yule, is get your stinking carcass off my property. You're leaning on it, and I can't afford fresh paint for it. Second thing you can do is stay away from my cook, or I'll have you up for assault. Ain't touched your Link Dees, and ain't about to go with no nigger. You don't have to touch her. All you have to do is make her afraid. And if assault ain't enough to keep you locked up a while, I'll get you in on the lady's law. So get out of my sight. If you don't think I mean it, just bother that girl again. Mr. Ewell evidently thought he meant it, for Helen reported no further trouble. I don't like it, Atticus. I don't like it at all, was Aunt Alexandra's assessment of these events. That man seems to have a permanent running grudge against everybody connected with that case. I know how that kind are about paying off grudges, and I don't understand why he should harbor one. He had his way in court, didn't he? I think I understand, said Atticus. It might be because he knows in his heart that very few people in Maycomb really believe his and Mayella's yarns. He thought he'd be a hero, but all he got for his pain was, was, okay, we'll convict this Negro, but get back to your dump. He's had his fling with about everybody now, so he ought to be satisfied. He'll settle down when the weather changes. But why should he try to burgle John Taylor's house? He obviously didn't know John was home or he wouldn't have tried. Only lights John shows on Sunday nights are on the front porch and back in his den. You don't know if Bob Ewell cut that screen. You don't know who did it, said Atticus. But I can guess. I proved him a liar, but John made him look like a fool. All the time Ewell was on the stand, I couldn't dare look at John and keep a straight face. John looked at him as if he were a three-legged chicken or a square egg. Don't tell me judges don't try to prejudice juries. <laughs> Atticus chuckled. 
by the end of October. Our lives had become the familiar routine of school, play, study. Jem seemed to have put out of his mind whatever it was he wanted to forget, and our classmates mercifully let us forget our father's eccentricities. Cecil Jacobs asked me one time if Atticus was a radical. When I asked Atticus, Atticus was so amused I was rather annoyed, but he said he wasn't laughing at me. He said, you tell Cecil I'm about as radical as Cotton Tom Heflin. And Alexandra was thriving. Miss Maudie must have silenced the whole missionary society at one blow, for Auntie again ruled that roost. Her refreshments grew even more delicious. I learned more about the poor Maroonas' social life from listening to Mrs. Merriweather. They had so little sense of family that the whole tribe was one big family. A child had as many fathers as there were men in the community, as many mothers as there were women. Jay Grimes Everett was doing his utmost to change this state of affairs and desperately needed our prayers. Macon was itself again, precisely the same as last year and the year before that, with only two minor changes. Firstly, people had removed from their store windows and automobiles the stickers that said, NRA, we do our part. I asked Atticus why, and he said it was because the National Recovery Act was dead. I asked who killed it. He said, nine old men. The second change in Makem since last year was not one of national significance. Until then, Halloween in Makem was a completely unorganized affair. Each child did what he wanted to do, with assistance from other children if there was anything to be moved, such as placing a light buggy on top of the livery stable. But parents thought things went too far last year when the peace of Miss Tootie and Miss Fruity was shattered. Miss Tootie and Fruity Barber were maiden ladies, sisters, who lived together in the only Makem residence boasting a cellar. The Barber ladies were rumored to be Republicans, having migrated from Clanton, Alabama in 1911. Their ways were strange to us, and why they wanted a cellar nobody knew. But they wanted one and dug one, and they spent the rest of their lives chasing generations of children out of it. Mrs. Tootie and Fruity, their names were Sarah and Frances, aside from their Yankee ways, were both deaf. Miss Tootie denied it and lived in a world of silence. But Miss Fruity, not wanting to miss anything, employed an ear trumpet so enormous that Jem declared it was a loudspeaker from one of those dog victrolas. With these facts in mind, and Halloween at hand, some wicked children had waited until the Mrs. Barber were thoroughly asleep, slipped into their living room, nobody but the Radleys locked up at night, stealthily made away with every stick of furniture therein and hid it in the cellar. I deny having taken part in such a thing. I heard em, was the cry that awoke the Mrs. Barber's neighbors at dawn the next morning. Heard em drive a truck up to the door. 
stomped around like horses. They're in New Orleans by now. Miss Tootie was sure those traveling fur sellers who came through town two days ago had purloined their furniture. Ah, they were, she said. Syrians. Mr. Heck Tate was summoned. He surveyed the area and said he thought it was a local job. Miss Fruity said she'd know a make em voice anywhere, and there were no make em voices in that parlor last night. Rolling their R's all over her premises, they were. Nothing less than the bloodhounds must be used to locate their furniture, Miss Tootie insisted. So Mr. Tate was obliged to go ten miles out the road, round up the county hounds, and put them on the trail. Mr. Tate started them off at the Mrs. Barber's front steps, but all they did was run around to the back of the house and howl at the cellar door. When Mr. Tate set them in motion three times, he finally guessed the truth. By noontime that day, there was not a barefoot child to be seen in Maycomb, and nobody took off their shoes until the hounds were returned. So, the Maycomb lady said things would be different this year. The high school auditorium would be open. There would be a pageant for the grown-ups. Apple bobbing, taffy pulling, pinning the tail on the donkey for the children. There would also be a prize of 25 cents for the best Halloween costume created by the wearer. 